0: Hi, this is Alan Burrow for Faith Working. The sermon you're about to hear is one I preached at the King's Congregation in Meridian, Idaho. For more sermon podcasts, go to faithworking.com. To subscribe to all our Faith Working podcasts, go to the iTunes store and search for Faith Working under podcasts. For information about the King's Congregation, go to the church website at thekingscongregation.com. This morning we're continuing laying the groundwork for the Olivet Discourse and the reason why we're spending a number of weeks on this is because there's a vocabulary and a use of conceptions and a way of speaking that we find here and in other places in the New Testament which is based on a vocabulary and a conceptual framework that we find in the Old Testament but is not common to, for example, Greek thinking in the ancient world and it is certainly not common to modern thinking, and so we want to acquaint ourselves with the conceptual framework and the vocabulary and the way of speaking. So this morning we will be looking at Matthew chapter 24, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 34. These are the words of God. Then Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and His disciples came up to show Him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Assuredly, I say to you, not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us when these things shall be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. And then in verse 34, Jesus tells them, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away until all these things take place. Let's pray. God, our Father, we know that we can understand nothing of Your truth, of Your Word, unless Your Spirit reveals it to us. We acknowledge that freely, and so we implore You, speak to us, Lord God, by Your Spirit this day, that we would understand Your Word, that it would dwell in our hearts, that it would burn within us, and that it would bear fruit to Your glory, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of the big challenges to understanding New Testament prophecy, such as we find in the Olivet Discourse, is a certain prejudice we moderns bring to the subject, and that is this. If the prophecies of the New Testament pertain to the return of Christ on the last day, and especially if we believe that they may come true or will come true in our own day, it is easy for us to see why that is a big deal. But if we are shown evidence that many of the New Testament prophecies actually pertain to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., that seems to us to trivialize them. To say that so much of the New Testament is taken up with prophecies that lie far in the past and pertain to the destruction of an ancient city, even if it was Jerusalem, seems to rob much of the New Testament of its significance and relevance to us today, but actually nothing could be further from the truth as I hope to show you this morning. I want to take a look at the significance that the New Testament attaches to the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and why that continues to be significant and highly relevant to modern Christians today and indeed to Christians of every single generation. As we look at how the New Testament views the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, I want us to notice that the New Testament presents the destruction of Jerusalem as proof of three crucial things. First, it is proof that Jesus is a true prophet. Second, proof that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father, and third, proof that Jesus now rules the nations with the word of the gospel and a rod of iron. So let's look at these. First of all, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is offered by the New Testament as proof that Jesus is a true prophet. In the Old Testament, God gave two tests to determine whether a prophet was true or false. One whether that prophet led the people of God toward God as the one true God, or whether they led the people of God away and and opened them up to the worship of other gods. That's the first test, and you can find that in Deuteronomy chapter 13. The second test was whether the things that the prophet prophesied came to pass, Deuteronomy chapter 18. In either case, false prophets were to be put to death. Now, when it came to prophesying events, it was important that the events be verifiable. Prophesying vague events, such as we find in fortune cookies or such that you find in horoscopes in the paper, those aren't verifiable because they're so vague anybody can interpret them as being true at any given time. So that does not qualify as an event which is verifiable. So prophesying vague events does not qualify, but also prophesying events that could occur at any time, including thousands of years later, is not a verifiable prophecy. How is a certain generation of people that have a person claiming to be a prophet sent by God before them supposed to verify events? Even if they're specific, if they could happen 2,000 years or more later. On the other hand, prophesying specific events that would occur during the current generation that is verifiable. And thus it is something upon which a prophet could stake their prophetic credentials. We have an example, there's many examples in the Old Testament, but a very good one is Jeremiah. Jeremiah prophesied the fall of Jerusalem to Babylon in his generation. And he also prophesied the return of the Jews from Babylonian exile to Jerusalem 70 years later, exactly 70 years. Now, both of those things occurred. Jerusalem was taken by Babylon during Jeremiah's lifetime, and then 70 years later, the Jews were allowed to come back to Jerusalem. Both of those things occurred, and thus they were a confirmation that Jeremiah was a true prophet sent from God. And at the time, during Jeremiah's life, those events seemed extremely improbable. It seemed improbable. In fact, Jeremiah was accused of being a false prophet. He was accused of being a false prophet because he was saying that the enemies of the people of God were going to come and take God's holy city and destroy the temple. But those things came true, which proved that he was a true prophet. Now, Jesus was a greater Jeremiah. He came as the greatest of all prophets. Indeed, He came as the prophet who summed up all the prophets who came before. He came as the capstone of all the prophets. All the previous prophets, Hebrews 1 tells us, spoke in bits and pieces. They spoke truly, but they spoke in bits and pieces. They gave you a certain piece or a couple of pieces of the puzzle. Jesus came as the prophets who spoke the entire truth, about God. He not only spoke the entire truth about God, he embodied the entire truth about God. It tells us in Colossians that in Him dwelt the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Jesus could say to his disciples, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. He's not saying I am the Father, he's the Son, but he's saying he's the perfect representation and the full representation of the Father. In Hebrews 1, it says that Jesus was the radiance of God's glory, the fullness of God's glory, and that Jesus was the exact representation of the nature of God. What then did Jesus offer as proof to show that he was a true prophet sent from God because all the prophets, false and true, claim to be true prophets, right? They all claim to be true. What did Jesus offer to show that he was true? Well, as the greater Jeremiah, he predicted the fall and the destruction of Jerusalem within the lifetimes of those then living. That was a specific prophecy. It wasn't vague. It was very specific. It was so specific that Jesus said, not just that Jerusalem was going to fall, he says, Do you see these magnificent buildings? Not one stone, not one is going to be left on top of another. Very, very specific. It was capable, thus, of verification. And he says, It's going to occur not some vague time in the future, it's going to occur in this generation. It's going to occur during the lifetimes of those who are listening to Jesus at the time. So that is a valid basis upon which Jesus' claim to be a true prophet from God could be assessed. Now, that was the most improbable prophecy at that time. It seemed to be impossible. This was Herod's temple. It was still being built. It was one of the wonders of the ancient world. It had Rome behind it. It seemed impossible what Jesus was saying, just like it seemed impossible many years before what Jeremiah was saying. Indeed, Herod's temple was not finished until 66 AD. So Jesus is saying these things in about 30 AD. It's already one of the wonders of the ancient world. It's going to continue for another 36 years to be built and to be added to and to have its magnificent uh, shined up even more. It's finished in 66 AD, the very next year, the Jewish war for independence from Rome breaks out in 67 AD and three years later, you will have over a million dead Jews and Jerusalem lying completely in ruins. So it seemed completely improbable at the time. Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things happen. What things? The things that the disciples asked about. When will these things be? When is every stone going to be torn down from another? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, as we've seen in our previous studies, all three of these are referring to the same thing. They're referring not to Jesus coming on the last day to judge the world, which He will do. The Bible is clear about that. That this is coming about, talking about a historic coming of Jesus and judgment on apostate Jerusalem, resulting in the destruction of the city and the temple, thus signifying the end of the Jewish age, which we've already seen. That Paul taught us in the book of Galatians, the end of the Jewish age, the Old Testament, the way you understand the difference between the Old Testament people and the New Testament people is not as two different people. Paul says in Galatians, you understand it as one person who in the Old Testament was in their childhood, was in their minority, was before they had grown up, before they had come of age. But the New Testament is to be understood as the same person in their majority, the same person who has come of age. And so you have the law, you have God's Word going from outside in the Old Testament, written on tablets of stone, which is what we have to do with little children. We have to put what's right and wrong. We have to put God's Word and His law everywhere around them. We put them on their walls. We show them in books. We teach it. We teach it. We surround them with it. That's what God says to do in Deuteronomy 6, right? He says, if you love me with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, here's the first thing you do. This word that I give you this day shall be everywhere your children look. It shall be everywhere they look. It should be on the gatepost. It should be on the front porch. It should be in the house. You shall talk of it when you get up. You should talk of it when you eat. You shall talk of it when you go to bed. They live in a world where the word of God is around them. They get it in surround sound all the time. But what is the purpose? What is the sign of maturity? What is the sign of coming of age, not legally, meaning right to vote and so forth, but spiritually, what's the sign of coming of age? The Word of God, which is on the outside, goes from the outside to the inside, and it's written on the heart by the Holy Spirit. That's what makes us smile as parents, right? That's what makes us sit back and just say, thank you, Lord, when we see our children We see evidence that the word is on the inside. It's written on their hearts. It's coming from inside. They're automatically making these decisions, the right decisions that they should, because there's a desire within them to love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and there's a desire in them to love their neighbor as themselves. There's a desire in them to confess their sins before Christ and no longer justify themselves and make excuses for sin. We see the light has gone on. We see that they get it. Well, that's what happened on the day of Pentecost, the birth of the Christian church. It is a coming of age. The law, which has been outside on tablets of stone, has now been written inside on tablets of stone, meaning our hearts. But the writing of that word there on the hearts turns those tablets of stone, which are our hearts, into tablets of flesh, true and living hearts before God. That's the way that we are to understand it. And so Jesus says, look, these things, all these things, all what things? The destruction of Jerusalem, his coming in judgment, and the end of the Jewish age will take place in that generation. What is it going to look like? It is going to look like Roman armies tearing down the temple stone by stone. That's what it's going to look like. And Jesus says, assuredly, amen, that's the word for amen, before God, I tell you, listen to me, take this to the bank, listen to what I'm saying, because as improbable as it sounds, I'm telling you this, it's all going to occur before this generation passes. Now, Jesus made similar prophecies throughout his ministry. He kept saying, here's my card, here's my credentials, here's how you're going to know whether I'm a true or false prophet. These things are going to occur. Matthew chapter 10 He says to the disciples, you're going to be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in this city, flee to another. For assuredly, amen, before God I say to you, you will not have gone through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. He's saying you're not going to be done evangelizing Judea before the Son of Man comes. Now, he's not talking about coming on the last day here to judge the world, which he's going to do. Here he's talking about coming in judgment on apostate Jerusalem. In Matthew 16, Jesus prophesied, the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, with his messengers, and he will reward each according to his works. Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death, till they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. In Matthew 26, Jesus, during His trial, prophesied to the high priest. Now, thus far in this trial, Jesus has been silent. The high priest keeps asking Him questions. Jesus keeps saying nothing. But finally, the high priest puts Jesus under oath. He says, I put you under oath by the living God. Tell us, are you the Christ, the Son of God, or not? Jesus said to him, it is as you said. Now, Jesus has made the claim, and now he's going to give him the proof. I've made the claim. It is as you say. I am the Christ. I am the Son of God. Now I'm going to give you the proof how you know. Nevertheless, I say to you that hereafter, you, high priest, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. You're going to see this. Now, why is all this important? For this reason. Skeptics have openly accused Jesus of being a false prophet because these prophecies, they say, did not come true. In other words, they get the fact that Jesus was offering this as proof. And they say these things did not come true. Bertrand Russell, the brilliant 20th century British mathematician and famous atheist, wrote a book named, Why I Am Not a Christian. And in that book, he said this, Jesus certainly thought that his second coming would occur in clouds of glory before the death of all the people who were living at that time. There are a great many texts that prove that, and there are a lot of places where it is quite clear that he believed that his coming would happen during the lifetime of the many then living. That was the belief of his earlier followers, and it was the basis of a good deal of his moral teaching. Bertrand Russell understood what many liberal theologians don't, which is you cannot divorce Jesus' moral teaching from the prophecies that he gave. Because in so many contexts, he stakes his moral teaching. He bases them, the authority of them, on his credentials as a true prophet, which he in turn based on on those prophecies coming true in that generation. Gerald LaRue wrote in the Skeptical Inquirer, Jesus explained the signs of the end of the age and promised His disciples that the new kingdom of God would be ushered in during their lifetime. Jesus was wrong. All we can say is that from that time on, every prophetic pronouncement of the ending of time has been wrong. Now that's just two of the skeptics. I could give you many other examples. But they have rightly argued if Jesus was wrong in these prophecies then we cannot trust anything he said on any subject. So we have a great irony here. For the very prophecies that Jesus offered to prove that he was a true prophet are the very ones upon which these skeptics have concluded that he was a false prophet. And not only that, but this has played a major role in liberal theology and the assault of liberal theology on the integrity of the scriptures. R.C. Sproul observed it in these words, the chief ground for the radical criticism of modern biblical scholarship, which has resulted in a wholesale attack on the trustworthiness of scripture and a far-reaching skepticism of our ability to know anything about the real historical Jesus is the thesis that the gospel's records of Jesus' predictions contained glaring errors and gross inaccuracies. Sproul, in his book, The Last Days According to Jesus, recalls his days in seminary, and he did not go to a conservative seminary. He recalls his liberal seminary professors heavy emphasis on biblical texts regarding the return of Christ, which they constantly cited as examples of errors in the New Testament and proof that the text had been edited to accommodate a crisis in the early church due to so-called parousia delay. In other words, they say these early Christians obviously believed that Jesus was coming in their own day, and then he didn't come, the world didn't end. The final judgment didn't come. The cosmos did not dissolve. The periodic table did not melt down. So obviously Jesus was wrong, and so the church in a panicked state had to accommodate that and adjust things and rewrite them and go, oh, oh, well, this generation doesn't actually mean this generation. This generation means this race, or this generation means something else. It is ironic that the modern evangelical church and I say that not as a slight because we're part of the modern evangelical church, but it's ironic that the modern evangelical church has played right into the hands of the skeptics and liberal theologians by insisting that Jesus' prophecies were not fulfilled in that generation, but still lie in the future. This has resulted from well-meaning Christians violating the rules of biblical interpretation. Remember what we have learned thus far, take the straightforward language straightforwardly and the apocalyptic language apocalyptically. The modern evangelical church has largely reversed that and taken the apocalyptic language literally and the straightforward language metaphorically. The skeptics and liberal theologians have followed the modern church's error in that they take the apocalyptic language that seems to be talking about the end of the world, they take that literally, but they have pounced upon the modern church's failure to take the straightforward language straightforwardly. And the straightforward language again and again is the part where Jesus says to the disciples, assuredly, amen, I say to you, all these things will occur during this generation. And they did. Jerusalem and the temple were laid waste by Roman legions in 70 AD. Herod's temple was completely destroyed. All of Jesus' prophecies came true. They all proved that he was a true prophet, but we miss it. And skeptics and liberal theologians have a field day because we fail to read Jesus' prophecies biblically, and we fail to grasp the significance of the destruction of Jerusalem. So we, as the modern evangelical church, have to recognize this error, and we have to turn around from it. And so that is our first point, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is Jesus' own proof that he offered that he was a true prophet sent from God. And I ask you, is that important or not? Yes, it is. Is that important today or not? Yes, it is. Secondly, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. is proof that Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. Forty days after Jesus rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven. In the words of Mark, at the conclusion of his gospel, he says, Jesus was received up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. Now, this is the same event that Daniel described in his famous vision of the Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7. This is what it says. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. But notice, where is he coming? He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, this is an important point when you hear about the coming of Jesus or the coming of the Lord. One of the questions is... Where is He coming? Because here is one of the great comings of the Lord Jesus Christ, and He's not coming to earth at all. He's coming to the Ancient of Days in heaven. So He says, Behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought Him near before Him. Then to Him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples and nations and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and His kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This was a vision of Jesus' coronation as King of kings, with all authority in heaven and on earth, as Jesus said in the great commission He gave to His disciples just before His ascension into heaven. It was the coronation of the world's king. It was not the coronation of my personal king or your personal king. This was a public event, not public in the sense that everybody saw it, but public in the sense that everybody is affected. This was the coronation of the world's king. God was not asking any of our permission whether Jesus received all power and authority. He didn't care what we thought. He didn't care what anybody thought. This is something God did, which changed the world forever. So this was the coronation of the world's king, but it was not a coronation that any of us witnessed. And as with Jesus's resurrection, God could have let everybody see it, but he didn't. Have you ever thought about that? We try to talk to people about the resurrection of Jesus and people dismiss it out of hand as an impossibility. You know, God could have let everybody see that, God could have let everybody see the coronation of Jesus in heaven, but he didn't. And this is one of those proofs that, as Isaiah tells us, you know, our ways are not God's ways. Because if we were doing it, we would have made it bigger than the Super Bowl. It would have been on every network. It would have been recorded. It would have been preserved. It would have been placed on YouTube. It would have been translated into every language. Everybody would have witnessed it, but that's not the way God did it. He chose a few witnesses. Now, if you think about it, the only witnesses of the actual resurrection event itself were the most unlikely. That is often said that it was the women who went to the tomb. No, they got there after the fact. It's even more unlikely. Who were the only witnesses of the actual resurrection event? Pagan Roman soldiers who were set there to guard the tomb. They're the only ones out of everybody who could have witnessed this, pagan Roman soldiers. Everybody else witnesses the resurrected Jesus after the event. Even then, God could have made it known and visible to everybody living in the world at that time, but He didn't. He chose a few disciples to interact with the resurrected Jesus after the fact. And only a few, such as Stephen, the first martyr, witness the ascended Jesus, not just the resurrected Jesus, but Jesus at the right hand of God. In Acts chapter 7, it tells us that right before uh, Stephen was stoned for his faith, it says that he was full of the Spirit, and he looked up, and the heavens were open to him. He was given a private viewing. Not everybody else there, Stephen was given a private viewing. He said, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He saw the ascended Jesus at the right hand of God. Now, what does that mean? That means a lot more than that Jesus was reaching down to take the hand of the first martyr. It says in the Old Testament that the death of God's saints is precious to Him. Whether they die of cancer, whether they die of an automobile accident, whether they die in their sleep, in their old age, or whether like Stephen they die for their faith. Jesus always takes the hand of his saints in death. And he reaches down to take Stephen's hand. He enables Stephen to see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Just a very personal, loving moment between Jesus and Stephen. This is Jesus saying, Stephen, it's going to be fine. It's going to be fine, because I'm standing right here, and you're coming to where I am. But it was even more important than that. It means that the events of Daniel's vision of the Son of Man had already been fulfilled by the time Stephen was martyred, which took place not very long after the day of Pentecost. Okay, because what does Daniel see? The Son of Man coming on the clouds to the ancient of days and receiving all power and authority and receiving the kingdom. And what does he say? I see the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Son of Man was the name that Jesus gave to himself. That's what he called himself. That's not what everybody else called him. The disciples called him rabbi, teacher, master, Lord, Messiah, Christ, Son of God. Other people called Jesus Satan. Deceiver, insurrectionist, and all kinds of bad names. But the name that Jesus always referred to himself was Son of Man. He kept referring to himself in the third person. The Son of Man, this, and the Son of Man, that. Why? Because he's letting people know I am the Son of Man that Daniel saw. And I'm bringing that to fulfillment right now. And that's what Stephen sees. Now, if you remember very quickly in the Old Testament, Son of Man, it says in the Daniel vision, one like the Son of Man. What's that supposed to mean? Remember, Son of Man is the name that God gave to the prophet Ezekiel, who was a contemporary of Daniel. Ezekiel is a priest whom God calls as a prophet. Now, that's unusual. God typically doesn't mix the offices like that. And then God keeps calling Ezekiel throughout the book. Son of man, son of man, son of man. He never calls him Ezekiel. He keeps saying, son of man, son of man. And then in Daniel's vision, he sees one like the son of man, one like Ezekiel, that is, one who is a priest, a high priest whom God has called as a prophet. Daniel sees one like that coming on the clouds before the ancient of days and becoming the king of kings. And Jesus is saying, I'm that guy. I am the priest, prophet, who becomes the king of kings. That is me. What were the signs that Jesus offered that these things were true? Because, again, God didn't let us all see this. God provided signs that these things had, in fact, taken place, that the resurrection had taken place, that the ascension had taken place. He gave the world signs to prove that they occur. What were those signs? There are two. One, the pouring out of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Now, that's not something people can witness either. We can't see the Spirit coming upon them. There were cloven tongues of fire upon them, but nobody was there but the disciples. What this means is the sign is the formation of the Christian church because that's what took place at Pentecost, the formation of the church. What does that mean? It means that there is a new temple. Because God's people are now His temple. There's not a temple which is a symbolic temple where God's Spirit dwells. In the midst of God's people, but not on His people themselves. If any of them actually go in there, they're going to die. Now the glory cloud of God is not dwelling over a building. It's dwelling over these sinners saved by the blood of Jesus. It's dwelling on them, and they're not dying. They're living, and they're speaking, and they're testifying. Sinners... Saved by the grace of God, by the blood of Jesus, in whom God's spirit and glory dwells. Walking through the same life, walking through the same mud, walking through the same stuff and the same flack that happens in life in a a sinful world. Speaking the truth of Jesus, being transformed step by step by step in a way that people can see. Getting married having children, working jobs, speaking the truth of Jesus, come what may, that, the church, is proof that Jesus raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand of the Father. The second sign is the destruction of apostate Jerusalem, that is, the removal of Christ's spirit from that temple that had now become an idol and a celebration of a Christless Judaism, the removal of Christ's Spirit from that temple, moving it into the temple of flesh, and therefore the removal of Jesus' protection from Jerusalem that had rejected not only the testimony of Jesus, but the testimony of the Holy Spirit and of the church for 40 years." When Jesus said to the high priest, hereafter you will see the Son of Man, who? The Son of Man, sitting at the right hand of the power and coming on the clouds of heaven. He wasn't saying that the high priest would see him like Stephen saw him, which was an actual seeing. For the word says that Stephen was filled with the Spirit and this high priest most definitely was not. He is saying that the high priest will see proof that Jesus is at the right hand of God and coming in judgment on apostate Jerusalem, of which that high priest was head. And Jesus was saying the same thing when he says in Matthew twenty-four thirty, Then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. Not the Son of Man in heaven, but the sign of the Son of Man in heaven. And then will mourn all the tribes of the earth. The word is actually land, referring to Israel because they are the tribes of the land, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with great power and glory. They will see the sign, the proof, that the Son of Man, Jesus, is in heaven at the right hand of God when he comes in judgment on apostate Jerusalem. That is the proof that Jesus prophesied to show that he had received from God all authority in heaven and on earth. Is that important today? Yes, it is it is critically important. Number three, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD is proof that Jesus rules the nations right now with the word of the gospel and the rod of iron. The book of Revelation opens with part that we typically skip over because it opens with a salutation. It tells us who the letter is to and who the letter is from. And this is before we get into the vision part of the book. The opening salutation is the straightforward part. There's no apocalyptic language here. It says that the letter is from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. Revelation 1.5, notice, this is not the vision part. This is about who this letter is from. This is the straightforward part. This letter is from Jesus Christ. Check, we get that. The faithful witness, check, we get that. The firstborn from the dead, check, we get that. And the ruler over the kings of the earth, no check, no, we don't get that. It was saying he was already, when this letter was written in the first century, he was already the ruler of the kings of the earth. And so the salutation continues. To him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. Now, we get the fact that we're priests. We get the fact that they were priests in the first century, right? Because the priesthood of all believers. That's something the evangelical church gets. What about the kingship of all believers? We don't get that. Revelations says you don't get to separate them. We think we're priests now, and one day we shall be kings because Jesus one day will assert his kingly privileges, but not now. No, if we're not kings, we're not priests. And we're not kings unless Jesus is king. But if Jesus is king, then we're kings in him. And if Jesus is priest, then we're priests in him. That's the way it works. Now, Revelation tells us that the reigning Christ, the ruler of the kings of the earth, rules by two things, a sword and a rod. Revelation nineteen fifteen. Now, out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. But notice, unlike when the, the commander of the Lord of hosts, the pre incarnate Jesus appeared to Joshua in the Old Testament, and they're about to take the land, and they're about to strike the peoples of the land, where is his sword? In his hand, which means what? People are going to physically die. Now the sword is where? In his mouth, which means that people are going to die in their spiritual deadness. He's going to strike the nations with a sword from his mouth. What is that? In the New Testament, it's the sword of the Spirit. It is the word of God. And then Revelation 19.15 completes the verse, and he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. So Revelation speaks of Jesus slaying the world with the uh, the sword that proceeds from his mouth, the word of God, the word of the gospel, and also ruling them with the rod of iron which is a symbol of bringing chastisement or judgment. So we know that the word, the sword, is the word of the gospel, and the rod of iron is Jesus' judgment on those who harden themselves again and again against the word of the gospel. This reign began with Jesus' ascension. We've already seen that in chapter 1, verse 5 of Revelation. It's also taught to us in Revelation twelve five. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God in his throne. What is that? That's the ascension. That's the ascension. Now, here's a clue. The book of Revelation is the most apocalyptic book in the New Testament. It's the most Old Testament book in the New Testament. And if you don't understand the Old Testament thoroughly, there's no way you can understand Revelation. But here's a clue. Revelation 12 is talking about the ascension of Christ. Revelations 12, you're in the middle of the book. You're right in the middle, and it's talking about the ascension of Jesus. Modern evangelical church, you're in the middle of Revelations, and it's talking about the ascension. Think about it. Now, what this looks like, ruling by the sword and the rod, is what is given to us in Psalm 2, one of the most quoted Old Testament passages in the whole New Testament, which also happens to be where we first hear about the rod of iron. I will declare the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. It's not talking there about the incarnation, but talking about the ascension. In other words, I've begotten you in your power. Ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Not just heaven, not just disembodied souls, no, the earth and the nations, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Here's the application. Here's what you're to do about this. Be wise, O kings. Get a clue, kings. Get a clue, authorities. Get a clue, politicians. Be instructed, judges, all you who have power and authority. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun which was an ancient symbol of paying homage to a king. You kiss the ring, you kiss the king, that's the way you say you are the king and you are my king. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way. Notice, not just that you perish on the last day, which of course shall occur, but you will perish where? In the way, in life, in history, in real time, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all those who put their trust In him. Another way of seeing this is the two houses that Jesus talks about at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. A house that's built on the rock, it's built on the Word of Christ. And then the house that's built on the sand, on any other Word. That's the sword, the Word. How is each person responding to the Word of the Gospel and to the Word of Christ? Are they receiving it and believing it and building on it, or are they not? And they're building on sand. The rod of iron is the storm that is sent upon both houses that shows us the difference between the two houses. One house stands, the other house falls. So here you have the sword of the word and you have the rod of iron, which is the sword of the storm. And the fact that Jesus wields the rod of iron means what? He is the Lord of the storm. So the sword is the witness that we see being born in the book of Acts. The rod of iron is what came on Jerusalem in 70 A.D. And that then brings us to the moral of the story, which is this. Everyone dies. Everyone dies because everyone is a sinner. Everyone dies, but there's two ways to die. You can die by the sword of Jesus' mouth, the word of God, which is to say you can be pierced by that sword, As 3,000 were on the day of Pentecost, they died that day because they were united to Jesus and they died in his death, which means they immediately rose in his resurrection. If you die by the sword of Jesus's mouth, you live even though you die. Or you can die by the rod of iron. You can die under Christ's judgment for having rejected the word of the gospel. Pentecost was the world's first witness of the sword from Jesus' mouth. The destruction of Jerusalem was the world's first witness of the rod of iron. And so you see, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD was not the demise of one more ancient city. It was the sign, the proof, that Jesus was a true prophet, that he ascended to the right hand of God, and that he rules the world today by the word of the gospel and the rod of iron, and I ask you, is that important today? Yes, it is, and it's vitally important for the evangelical church to recover these truths. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.